Well, today we'll be looking at several promises that we experience in the Lord's Supper. I'll be reading several scripture passages at different points in the sermon, but let's begin by reading from Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and I'll read verses 26 to 29. This is God's holy and infallible word for us, his people. While they were eating, Jesus took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Uh, One of the worship professors at Calvin Seminary, where both Pastor Greg and I went, liked to give a number of brief assignments, and he'd call them elevator speeches. Pretend you're on an elevator with somebody, he'd say, and they ask you a question. Why do you baptize infants? What's the point of coming to worship? Whatever it would be, and he would want us to give back a 30-second or one-sentence summary saying this is why this is what we do. And sometimes he'd turn that question around and say, don't give your own answer, but think about what would the average kid in your congregation say if I asked them this question? And one of the questions he liked people to be able to answer was, what's the point of the Lord's Supper? What do we do when we have the Lord's Supper together? And if you think about that in terms of how a kid might answer, you might get a few different responses. You might start out with, well, that's the time we get all those fancy, shiny plates and things up there, and we pass them around, and we all hope really hard that nobody drops a tray. Every time we do it, I hope that. It's always worked out so far. You might get a little bit different description. Well, the Lord's Supper is just that time that we eat a little bit of bread and we have a little drink. If you go a little deeper, you might get a common response, and this is the one that that worship professor got the most often. The Lord's Supper is about us remembering Jesus' death. The Lord's Supper is about us remembering Jesus' death. And that's a pretty good one-sentence elevator speech about the Lord's Supper. But the way that we often think about it actually makes the Lord's Supper kind of flat, and it makes it too focused on what we do. If all we do in the Lord's Supper is remember Jesus' sacrifice, Well, there's a lot of other ways that we can remember Jesus' sacrifice. What's special about this? And often when we think about the Lord's Supper, the way we experience it is what we do. The things that we pass around, the remembering that we do. So in different ways, we often stay at the surface level of the Lord's Supper. We think just about the physical stuff, the bread and the wine. We focus on our own experience, how we feel, what we're doing And we lose sight of how God is at work on this occasion. So this morning, I want to use our time of listening to God's word together to help us deepen our understanding and our practice of the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that by looking at several promises of God that we experience through the Lord's Supper. I'm going to look at three promises this morning. First, one in the past, then one we experience in the present, And finally, one that looks toward the future. In the Lord's Supper, our God gives us a sign and seal 
of the finished work of Christ. In the Lord's Supper, our God brings us into deeper communion with Christ. And in the Lord's Supper, our God gives us renewed hope that we will live forever with him. In the Lord's Supper, we have remembrance, communion, and hope. Remembrance, communion, and hope. And we'll look at each of those three promises through an Old Testament text. Before we read that first Old Testament text, I should mention that I got that remembrance, communion, and hope line from my worship professor at Calvin, and he got it from another worship professor somewhere else, and so on and so forth. So it's not really my idea, but I think it gives us a good picture of what the Lord's Supper is all about. So the first promise, for the first promise, we'll read from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, and we'll read verses 4 to 6. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. First, in the Lord's Supper, God reminds us of his promise that Christ's sacrifice is applied to us, his people. That's a lot to process, so let me say it again, and it's up on the screen too. Through the Lord's Supper, God reminds us of his promise that Christ's sacrifice is applied to us, his people. When we eat this bread and drink this wine, God reminds us that Christ suffered and died for us. That passage in Isaiah 53 is a prophecy or a promise about the suffering servant that God would send to save his people. And Isaiah tells us that that servant, who the New Testament identifies as Jesus, will come and take our pain and bear our suffering. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus' body was broken on our behalf. His blood was shed for us. These particular elements, this bread and wine or juice, if you take the cups in the middle, these particular things are a sign and a seal that Christ has died for us. And it's not just that Christ died for some generic people in general. It is that Christ has died for each one of us, his people. In the Lord's Supper, God gives us, he gives me, he gives you a reminder of the promise that Christ's work is applied to us. Now, in the classic movie, Goodwill Hunting, Matt Damon plays the, plays the part of a young genius who's had a really troubled life. He was abused as a kid. He lives in the slums. Life is tough. And he is always looking for ways to strike out, looking for the next trouble to get into, the next fight to start, the next way to express the anger that he has. And eventually he gets pulled in front of a judge who isn't going to listen to any of his excuses, who doesn't care what he says, and who requires that he gets some counseling. Now at first Damon's character thinks that's kind of a joke, 
and he burns through a bunch of counselors. He figures out their weak spot, and he ticks them off, or he makes them feel like idiots, and they walk out on him. But finally, he comes up against a counselor played by Robin Williams, and the two of them go back and forth. They're both a little bit abrasive. They push each other's buttons, but over time, they figure out how to work with each other, and they develop a level of trust. And finally, in a pivotal scene in the movie, Robin Williams' character, this counselor, is looking through a file about Damon's past. And there's notes in there about all the bad stuff he's done, all the bad stuff that's happened to him. They talk for a bit, and then he closes the folder. He looks at this troubled young guy in front of him, and he says, this isn't your fault. I know, Damon's character says. But William's character, this counselor, isn't done yet. No, this isn't your fault. Yeah, I know. No, this isn't your fault. I get it. I get it. I know. No, this isn't your fault. And finally, Damon's character gets it and he breaks down in tears and he comes undone. He had known for years and years in his head that all this terrible stuff that happened to him wasn't his fault, but that had never gotten to his heart. In his heart, at the center of his being, he was still driven by the sense that everything was his fault. And that brokenness on the inside had driven him to years and years of acting out in anger and violence. But when someone finally got through to him, this wasn't your fault. You can let go. Your life can be changed. Finally, his heart responded and his life changed. Now something similar, but also something radically different can happen to us when we take the Lord's Supper. The big difference is that this is our fault. This is our fault. Christ suffered unendurable agony because of what I have done. It was your fault that Christ suffered and died. But still Jesus comes to us and he says, I have taken your fault away. I suffered for you, says Jesus. I suffered for you. Now, I would guess most of us know that in our heads, but we often hold the truth at an arm's length. We know that Christ suffered and died for us, but for different reasons, it's hard for us to really have that become heart knowledge. Some of us feel like we're good enough that Jesus didn't really need to suffer all that much for us. Others of us feel like we're so, so, so bad that Jesus could not possibly have really chosen to suffer for stupid, broken, terrible me. But when we take the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit comes to us and shows us that Christ's body and blood were really spent for us. We hear this all the time, but the reality that we need to remember today is that Jesus died for you, for you, for you, for you, for you, for me. Christ died once and for all. Christ died.
for you. Now take that to heart today in a little bit as we eat the Lord's Supper. When we hold this bread and cup in our hands, when we take them, the Holy Spirit works in our heart. The Holy Spirit uses these physical, everyday things, these signs and seals to remind and assure us that Christ died for us. This bread and wine, this body and blood of Jesus are for you. This is for you. Take and eat, remember, and believe. Now, the second promise we'll look at today, if that first one was focused on Jesus' past, finished work, the second promise we'll look at is more focused on the present. And for that promise, we'll go to the book of Jeremiah, to Jeremiah chapter 31, and we'll read verses 31 to 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Through the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit brings us into deeper communion with Christ. Through the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit brings us into deeper communion with Christ. The present promise of the Lord's Supper is that through this event, the Holy Spirit draws us up into closer communion with Jesus. In Matthew 26, Jesus tells his disciples that the wine is the blood of the covenant. And Jeremiah 31 is one of the Old Testament texts that point forward to that new covenant that Jesus is talking about. Jeremiah 31 looks forward to a day that God will make a new kind of covenant with his people. In that day, says Jeremiah, God's people will all truly know the Lord. And that word for know there isn't just about being in possession of a certain set of facts. It's more like knowing a close family member. More like knowing your best friend. You know what they're like. You spend time with them. You've gotten to know them as someone close to you. You know they care for you, and you grow in caring for them. The Lord's Supper is one way that God draws us into his presence, continues to deepen our faith, and to strengthen our relationship with him. I had a weekend off last week, as many of you probably know, and my family and I went up to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And when we go to Grand Rapids, we have a number of friends and family up there. But there's this particular set of friends that we have, and we almost always see them. And often we go to this particular restaurant there. It was one of our favorites when we lived in Grand Rapids. It's become a tradition that that's where we go with those people. We pretty much get the same food most of the time. We have a lot of the same sorts of things that happen. That is a special time for our family. When we go there, when we share that meal, we think back to all the good times we've had together and we create some more good memories. That's a meal 
but it's also more than just a meal. It's a special time together. It's sharing our lives. It's deepening our relationship. There is something that happens over that food. When you share a meal with close friends or family, it brings you together. And that closeness of that shared meal is a small, just a small echo of what the Lord's Supper can bring about in us. The Lord's Supper is a shared time that unites us to Christ in a deeper way. In God's grace, the Holy Spirit uses these physical, visible things, these signs and seals, to draw us deeper into communion with God. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we share a time of special fellowship with God himself. This bread and this drink is a sign and an occasion for the Holy Spirit to unite us more deeply to Christ. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we here and now have true, deep communion with our Lord Jesus in heaven. The third and final promise we'll look at today is focused on the future. And for that last promise, we'll go back to the book of Isaiah and we'll read Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And in that day, they will surely say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in our, in our salvation. Through the Lord's Supper, the Lord renews our hope that he will save us to live with him forever. Through the Lord's Supper, the Lord renews our hope that he will save us to live with him forever. Now at Springfest last night, I had an illustration picked out for this point, but I realized I had a big problem. I was going to talk to you about football, and I grew up in the Denver area, so it was going to be about the Denver Broncos. But then I realized the Blackhawks were playing last night, so I was talking about the wrong city and the wrong sports team, so I had to change things up a little bit. And for those of you who didn't know, the Blackhawks played last night. It was a Game 7. They won. Just take all the drama out of it right now. They won. They're going to the Stanley Cup Finals this year. But what I thought was really interesting was at about 7.05 last night, just a little bit after the game started, we had started cleaning up from Spring Fest, and all of a sudden, everybody had their phones out, and they were hitting that, you know, everybody hit the refresh button. Come on, what's going on with the game? Show me, show me, show me. And then about two and a half minutes in, Taze, right? Taze scored a goal, and everybody, excitement on the phone, yeah, we got a goal, we got a goal, go Taze, go. And they were running around telling everybody else, we scored, we scored, we got a goal, we got this in hand, we're going to win. It was a little crazy, honestly. <laughs> but it was fun. The Blackhawks are headed to the Stanley Cup. And hopefully, you never know, but hopefully they'll win. And we'll have a big party. 
I don't know what Chicago does, but in Denver, whenever a team won, they had a huge party. The city shut down. They had parades. People did school. People took time off of work. And everybody celebrated because the victors were coming home. We had won again. Well, in ancient times, they did something similar after they won a great victory. A little more military than sports, but they also had these big parties. Think of victory celebration after winning a world championship, but multiply it by 10. These feasts celebrated the destruction of the enemy and the beginning of good times again. This was the very best of times when the fear and the violence were over, when the people could look to a brighter future. And the feast that Isaiah 25 talks about is the ultimate version of that kind of victory celebration. It looks forward to the time when God will make all things right with the world. That feast that Isaiah 25 talks about is a banquet that will celebrate the end of evil and the salvation of God's people. When we sit down to that meal together with the Lord, everything will have been made right. And we will be able to say without end, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. But we can't entirely say that today. Isaiah 25 talks about God destroying the shroud of grief. It talks about him swallowing up death forever. It says on that day, God will wipe away all of our tears and remove his people's disgrace. But that day is not this day. We are not there yet. We are still grieving We still experience death. We still cry. We still hurt. We are still waiting for God to make all things right. But we do get glimpses and glimmers of that feast that we'll have someday. And one of those glimpses, one of those glimmers, one of those signs of God's coming kingdom is the Lord's Supper. This bread and wine is a foretaste. It's just the very smallest beginning of that great victory feast that all of God's people will share with him someday. The Lord's Supper gives us a sign that God has not forgotten about us. It gives us hope that someday he will make everything right. In Matthew 26, Jesus tells his disciples that he will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until he drinks it with all of his people in his coming kingdom. God himself is looking forward to the day when everything will be made right. He's waiting for the right time, and it will be the right time. We know that because our God is good, but we don't know what that time will be. But the Lord's Supper is one of the means that God uses to keep us going to that day. This is the smallest beginnings of the feast. It's the tiniest appetizer to renew our hope of what's coming. This is the refreshment that we need to continue on the journey in hope. In God's grace, the Holy Spirit uses these visible, physical things, these signs and seals, to renew our hope in God's promises. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are refreshed And we catch just a small glimpse of the day when grieving will end, when death will pass away, when our tears will be wiped away for good. This bread and wine are a physical sign of the hope that we have in Christ. And that hope will not fail.
remembrance, communion, and hope. In the Lord's Supper, we remember the past fulfilled promise that Christ's sacrifice was for us, his people. In the Lord's Supper, we experience a present fulfillment of the promise that we are united to Christ our Lord and Savior. In the Lord's Supper, we receive encouragement and renewed hope that we will live with our Lord forever. This meal takes us back to Christ's finished work of saving us. This meal brings us up into communion with God himself. This meal points us forward to the end of days when we will enter into eternal life. When we eat this bread and wine together, we share in a meal of remembrance, communion, and hope.